Friends, uh, today, uh, Clint, where is Zach? Our own Clint, our own Deacon Clint is going to be uh, preaching for us. And right now we're going to go and uh, listen to the word of God. So James, would you please uh, read the Bible for us? Uh, yes. So uh, the first reading today is from Isaiah chapter 30, uh, verses uh, 1 through to 22. Ah, stubborn children, declares the Lord, who carry out a plan, but not mine, and who make an alliance, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction, to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh, and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore shall the protection of Pharaoh turn to your shame, and the shelter in the shadow of Egypt to your humiliation. For, for though his officials are at Zoan, and his envoys reach Hanes, everyone comes to shame, through a people that cannot profit them, and brings neither help nor profit, but shame and disgrace. An oracle on the beasts of Negeb, through the land of trouble and anguish, from where come the lioness and the lion, the adder and the flying fiery serpent. They carry their riches on the back of donkeys and their treasures on the humps of camels to a people that cannot profit them. Egypt's help is worthless and empty. Therefore, I have called her Rahab who sits still. And now go, write it before them on a tablet and inscribe it in a book, that it may be for the time to come as a witness forever. For they are a rebellious people, lying children, children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord, who say to the seers, do not see, and to the prophets, do not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us smooth things, prophesy illusions, Leave the way, turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, thus says the Holy One of Israel, because you despise this word and trust in oppression and perverseness and rely on them, therefore this iniquity shall be to you like a breach in a high wall, bulging out and about to collapse, whose breaking comes suddenly in an instant. And its breaking is like that of a potter's vessel that is smashed so ruthlessly that among its fragments, not a shard is found with which to take fire from the hearth or to dip up water out of the cistern. For thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest you shall be saved, in quietness and in trust shall be your strength. But you were unwilling and you said, no, we will flee upon horses. Therefore, you shall flee away, and we will ride upon swift steeds. Therefore, your pursuers shall be swift. A thousand shall flee at the threat of one, and at the threat of five you shall flee. Till you are left like a flagstaff on top of a mountain, like a signal on a hill. Therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. For a people shall dwell in Zion, in Jerusalem. You shall weep no more. He will surely be gracious to, to you at the sound of your cry. As soon as he hears it, he answers you. 
And though the Lord gives you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teacher will not hide himself anymore. But your eyes shall see your teacher and your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. When you turn to the right or when you turn to the left, then you will defile your carved idols overlaid with silver and, to, and your gold-plated metal images. You will scatter them as unclean things. You will say to them, be gone. The word of the Lord. Be to God. Now, Clint, will you uh, open the word for us? Thanks, Jim. Um, thank you, everyone. It's, uh, it's wonderful to be with you this morning. It's, uh, uh, it's a uh, big passage that I uh, picked out for us today. Uh, I guess you, you give the deacon uh, an inch and he takes a mile here. So, um, But uh, bear with me. It's a good passage. Uh, let me pray for us as we um, dive into our text, which is Isaiah 30. Father, uh, we are grateful for you. We're grateful for your presence. We're grateful for your spirit. We ask that as we have uh, gathered together in the way that we can right now, um, that you would send your spirit upon each one of us. Open our eyes, our hearts to your word. Um, guide my words. Uh, help us to meet you this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So, uh, we're looking at uh, our Old Testament reading from Isaiah 30. So I invite you to, to flip over there uh, in your, your, your program. Uh, we're going to follow along with that. Uh, it's not actually the whole chapter as long as it is, but it's an important passage, especially in light of the situation that we're in, uh, that we're just facing in the world today. And it's a passage that confronts us with a question. And that question is, what is your go-to when faced with adversity, uh, uncertainty, or suffering? What's your impulse to return to when we face those sorts of things? What is it that comforts you? What do you stress out about? What do you use to cope with stress or uncertainty? You know, what is your go-to? Do you turn to things like family? Do you turn to things like money or possessions or stuff? Do you turn to distraction? There's things like entertainment or travel or hobbies, things that aren't necessarily bad, but they can be just distractions. Or do you turn to denial? There, there's uh, an impulse in some of us where we're just going to tough it out. We know that things are, are different, they're strange, but if we just plow ahead, then things are going to work out. Our context uh, is, is kind of overwhelming. We have the pandemic, we have the economic downturn that has come from that, and we've had the exposure of present and historic racial injustice. We have all of these things that are before us. And those of us who are here in the city have been through what we hope is the worst of the pandemic, but there's uncertainty about what if there's another wave. And we're watching many in the rest of the country on the brink of what we've already gone through is we see virus cases surging. Some of us have lost loved ones. Some of us have recovered from the virus. And the economy's taken a hit. 
unemployment persists, reopening plans are delayed and modified, and that's sometimes daily. Jobs that we thought were secure have proved not to be. And many of us are just in a perpetual cycle of waiting for our industry or our jobs to open up. Even schools are scrambling to figure out what is the fall going to look like. And if you're a parent, you're, you're trying to figure that out too. And then as we faced this isolation, our eyes have been opened to the racial injustice that has deep roots in this nation's history. We've seen the video of George Floyd and we've heard what's happened to Breonna Taylor. And we've seen how this is but the most recent manifestation of a long history of slavery and segregation and racial violence that needs to be reckoned with. Some of us long for the good old days, but for many there never was the good old days. So what do we do in the face of adversity, uncertainty, and suffering? Well, turning to Isaiah 30, we find the answer to this. We're called to return and rest and calmly trust Jesus. But what I want to, us to see this morning is that doesn't actually mean what you probably think it means. This returning and rest and calmly trusting. But in order to understand all of this, uh, what's going on in our passage, we need a bit of context for the passage. We're dropping right into the middle of a large story. The time is the 8th century BC, kind of the latter part of that century. God's people, the nation of Israel, are a bit of a mess. And if we think back to the book of Exodus, we're reminded that God has led his people out of slavery in Egypt and into what is called the promised land. It's a land from which his people are to prosper and grow and be a blessing to other nations. But Israel has a history of not trusting God. It actually starts right away when they've barely left Egypt and they're facing challenges like how are they going to eat and how are they going to survive against people with strong armies? And they almost immediately start grumbling about how things were better when they were slaves in Egypt. Yet God provides for them and he leads them and it continues. And all the while they keep turning away to worship other gods they make unwise alliances with other people, and they just do their own thing. And so by the 8th century, there's been a long history, a long succession of mainly mediocre at best, or else downright evil and unjust kings that have led Israel. At the point that we're at in our passage, the nation has actually been split into two. There's the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And there's this new superpower that has risen up in the land. It's the Assyrians. They've already destroyed the northern kingdom. They've led the people off to captivity. And those people are not going to return from that captivity. And so we have the southern kingdom of Judah. They're left with this ominous sense of waiting for when the Assyrians are going to come knocking. They know they're coming. And so what are they going to do? Now, the king of Judah at this time is actually one of the good ones. His name's Hezekiah. And we learn from the book of Kings, 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles, that when he came to power, he went to work destroying all the idols that people had set up. He restored the worship of the Lord in the temple. He fortified the city of Jerusalem. And he reinstituted the religious feasts like the celebration of Passover. 
But despite the many good things that Hezekiah did to lead his people back to God, we find him here at one of the low points. He's about to make a very bad decision. When faced with the prospect of Assyria's power and dominance, instead of turning to the Lord for help, he hatches a plan to make an alliance with Egypt. Now try to understand the gravity of this situation. You've witnessed the awesome destructive power of Assyria. The northern kingdom, which was made up of 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel, is no more. The people who have lived there have been shipped off. They are scattered all over the Assyrian Empire. And there's a good chance that this is going to happen to you. This is a new source of fear and oppression that you don't want to experience. And what do you do? Well, Hezekiah looks around and there's Egypt. Yeah, they're not as strong as they used to be, but they're a potential ally. Yeah, they, they used to oppress us, but you know, maybe they've changed. And, and yeah, they're, they're constantly a symbol of oppression and opposition, animosity towards God and his people. But you know, maybe we can just forget the bad stuff and move on. The choice is between Assyria and Egypt. Do we give in to the new source of fear and oppression and dislocation, Assyria? Or do we return to the good old days, which, you know, maybe wasn't so bad as we thought, but, you know, yeah, we're going to have to ignore a lot of bad stuff to make that work. And, but in reality, though, Egypt here is symbolic for not God, for trusting in something other than God. Now, Isaiah is a prophet. That's to say a person who speaks the word of God to his people. He's a prophet to the southern kingdom of Judah that remains in the land. And here he's weighing in on the situation. And as a prophet, uh, he doesn't pull any punches. He's about exposing the nature of Egypt. He's about warning God's people. And this whole passage is actually a poetic warning to God's people. It's all in the form of poetry. There's an oracle. Um, all, the, all this language that he uses. So turn with me to uh, Isaiah 30, uh, the verse, first five chapters. It starts out with, Ah, stubborn children, declares the Lord, who carry out a plan but not mine, and who make an alliance but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction, to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh, and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore shall the protection of Pharaoh turn to your shame, and the shelter in the shadow of Egypt to your humiliation. For though his officials are at Zoan, and his envoys reach Hanes, everyone comes to shame through a people that cannot profit them, that brings neither help nor profit, but shame and disgrace. Now, do you notice the rejection of God in these actions? God's people do not ask, for God, ask God for direction in verse 2. But even more shocking are the verbs and adjectives used to describe Israel's relationship to Egypt and Pharaoh. They seek to take refuge in the protection of Egypt. They seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. For anyone who's familiar with the book of Psalms, you see immediately that this language is the language that's used to express trust and intimacy with God. Psalm 91 starts with these words. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. 
I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. That's the language being used for Egypt here. And if you look at our, our uh, New Testament reading in Revelation, there's this, this vast image of what we hope for, of people from every tribe and language worshiping God. And right in the middle of that, there's this image of us being sheltered in God's presence. This is our hope. Um, this is what it, it's part, what it means to be part of God's people. He shelters us. He protects us. He's our refuge. He's our fortress. And here we see God's people are turning to something else. And Isaiah continues on. He's, he's still hitting hard. He goes into verses 6 and 7. They say, An oracle on the beasts of the Negev, through a land of trouble and anguish from where come the lioness and the lion, the adder and the flying fiery serpent, they carry their riches on the back of donkeys and their treasures on the humps of camels to a people that cannot profit them. Egypt's help is worthless and empty. Therefore, I have called her Rahab who sits still. So here Isaiah is painting this primal image of God's people. They're like the beasts of the land operating on instinct, falling back to their heart habits of chasing after safety and wealth. They go right back to Egypt. And Egypt here is called worthless, empty, and is compared to the mythological sea monster Rahab. It's a symbol of chaos, but this, this Rahab is sitting still and doing nothing. There's no hope there. Isaiah then presses further in verse 9. And now go, write it before them on a tablet and inscribe it in a book that it may be for the time to come as a witness forever. For they are a rebellious people, lying children, children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord, who say to the seers, do not see, and to the prophets, do not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us smooth things, prophesy illusions, leave the way, turn aside from the path, let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. Isaiah here points out not, the, not only the unwillingness to listen to God, but the twisting of words to make one feel good about what is being done. It's like facing the truth, an inconvenient and unsettling truth, and rather than actually dealing with it, you stick your fingers in your ears and you say, I'm not listening unless you tell me what I want to hear and what I think I already know. Even when it comes to God, I'd, I'd rather not have my presuppositions challenged. So verse 12, we start out with the word therefore. Isaiah is going to sum up what he's been saying and then tell them of the consequences. Therefore, thus says the Holy One of Israel, because you despise this word and trust in oppression and perverseness and rely on them. Now pause for a moment. That's, that's really strong language. You despise this word. That's a way of saying you just reject it. You despise this warning. And you trust and rely on oppression and perverseness. And that's what it means to seek refuge and protection in anything other than God. You're placing your trust in those things. Are those things trustworthy? 
What are those sorts of things in your own life? What do you choose to trust and rely on to get you through these unsettling times? Back to the passage. Because you choose, choose to trust in these things, disaster will come in an instant. Verse 13 says, Therefore this iniquity shall be to you like a breach in a high wall, bulging out and about to collapse, whose breaking comes suddenly in an instant, and its breaking is like that of a potter's vessel that is smashed so ruthlessly that among its fragments not a shard is found with which to take fire from the hearth or to dip up water out of the cistern. So much of what we trust in is so fragile. The stock markets, the economy, our health, our jobs, even the fabric of this nation. These things are like a wall that is about to give away. So what is your Egypt? What do you hold falsely up with God-like attributes? What do you turn to when you face uncertainty and adversity or suffering? Is it the pursuit of wealth and status and health as a means of fulfillment and happiness? Is it about getting a degree from the right place? Is it just safety? Is it a narrative about this nation that minimizes or excludes the tragedy of slavery and Jim Crow and segregation and discrimination? These are all idols. They have no power to save and heal and lead to life. Turning to verse 15, though, we find God speaking. And he's giving us an invitation. He's giving an invitation to his people. In doing so, he provides a third option. Right? You have Assyria on one hand and Egypt on the other. Uncertainty, suffering, and struggle on one hand or a return to what hasn't worked in the past, but it's starting to look good again. Verse 15 to 17 says, For thus said the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, In returning and rest you shall be saved, in quietness and trust shall be your strength. But you are unwilling, and you said, No, we will flee upon horses, therefore you shall flee away, and we will ride upon swift steeds, Therefore, your pursuers shall be swift. A thousand shall flee at the threat of one, and at the threat of five you shall flee to your left like a flagstaff on the top of a mountain, like a signal on a hill. Here we're presented with another option of returning. Rather than returning to Egypt, we're invited to return to the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel. In returning and rest, you shall be saved. In quietness and trust shall be your strength. Think about that for a moment. That sounds good, right? Rest and quiet and salvation and strength. In the face of all the turmoil that surrounds us. But remember, at the start start of our time, I said, we're called to return and rest and calmly trust in Jesus but that doesn't necessarily mean what you think it means. We're going to dig into that in just a moment. Immediately after this, though, there's a but. This option's given, but it says, but you are unwilling. 
Now maybe, maybe you resonate with this. Maybe you aren't fully convinced that this God is someone who can be trusted. You'd rather go with what has worked or, or hasn't worked in the past. We're going to get back to this in a moment as well. But here Isaiah gives us a warning. If you say we'll flee on horses, then that's what you'll do. If you put your trust in your own abilities, your go-to defenses, your default coping mechanisms, then yeah, you'll do it. God's not going to force you. But you'll wind up defeated, isolated, desolate, like a flagstaff alone on the top of a mountain. It's an image of defeat. It's an image of rejection and loneliness and fear and vulnerability exposed to the very thing that you fear. And now we come to another therefore in verse 18. Therefore, after turning back to Egypt, after choosing to rely on oppression and perverseness and seeking shelter and protection through anything but God, what do you expect? The whole force of this passage is weighing us down. It's setting up the expectation of judgment and rejection. Therefore, we think God's had enough. Therefore, God's done with you. Therefore, you're on your own. But no. Therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you. And therefore, he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. The Lord waits, um, or more accurately, the Lord longs to be gracious to you. This is who God is. His first impulse is longing to be gracious. Sit in that for a moment. He wants to give you what you don't deserve. He wants to give you life. He wants to give stability. He wants to comfort you even when you turn away. Verse 19 continues. For a people shall dwell in Zion, in Jerusalem. You shall weep no more. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. As soon as he hears it, he answers you. This is God's compassion and desire to comfort us and provide for us especially in times of instability and uncertainty and adversity. And wrapped up in all of this is God's justice. The Lord is a God of justice. He wants to set things right. He cares about his people being oppressed. He cares about their well-being. But that well-being, that justice is only found when he sets things right so that we can follow him into it. When we skip the God part, we start to get into trouble. Now, this is all ultimately fully expressed to us in Jesus. God doesn't change over time. Just as God longed to be gracious to his people back then, he longs to be gracious to us now. And if you fast forward from where our passage is to about 800 years, you find God's people are again being subjugated to another superpower. They're under the Roman Empire. And in this context, God comes to us as a human being, it's Jesus, as a child, and he experiences the full weight of what we dish out and what we fear and what we deserve. He ends up as a child having to flee to Egypt to avoid a murderous ruler 
was slaughtering children to cause, because that ruler, Herod the Great, thinks his power is being threatened. After he survives that, he lives his life. And as he does so, he heals people. He frees people. And then he takes on their sin. He takes on their story of rejecting God and carries it to the end result of what that means. Death on a cross. He's the God who, as he is being crucified on the cross, yells out, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And he dies. He bears the brunt of what it means to turn our back on God. He takes the mess of our turning away from God and turns it into the way that we come to know God. And this is why we can trust God, because he's intimately involved in his creation. So much so he's willing to go through death to set things right for his people. He's the one who says to us, it was our reading last week, Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. If you've never come to Jesus, if you've never trusted him to take the lead in your life, to guide and direct you, the invitation is always open. It's open now. Take it. And if you've been following Jesus for a while, the invitation doesn't change. It just goes deeper and deeper. When the choice seems to be between giving in to what we fear or returning to what we're used to, there is always a better way. It's returning to Jesus. The last thing I want to draw out for us from our passage is what it means to go deeper. That is what it means that in returning and rest, in quietness and trust, you will be saved in verse 15. Those things... Returning and rest, quiet and trust, actually sound rather therapeutic, like a good vacation with a good book and a cold drink and lounging on the beach. But Jesus is not our therapist. He is our healer. The rest of our passage draws out what verse 15 is getting at and why we would be tempted to have none of it. Verse 19 to 22 says, he will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. Midway through in verse 19. As soon as he hears it, he answers you. And though the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teacher will not hide himself anymore, but your eyes shall see your teacher. And your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it, when you turn to the right or when you turn to the left. Then you will defile your carved idols overlaid with silver and your gold-plated metal images. You will scatter them as unclean things. You will say to them, be gone. Now, does that sound like grace? The giving of the bread of adversity and the water of affliction? That's a strange phrase. But what it's getting at is that the path of following Jesus is not the easy path. It is straight on into your fears and your pain, the adversity and the shattered hopes and dreams you have. The rest we seek actually comes from facing that and realizing that Jesus is the one in the midst of it all who wants to heal you and provide for you. 
Your teacher will not hide from you. Your eyes shall see your teacher. We will find rest when we look upon the beauty of Jesus and entrust ourselves into his capable hands. We entrust the mess that we've made. We acknowledge the hurt, the affliction we have suffered. And we look to Jesus when all seems lost. When we know Egypt's going to fail us again and Assyria is ready to crush us. And then we listen. It's quietness and trust. But again, this isn't take a deep breath and put on your favorite song and chill out. It's more like shut up and listen. God is not playing around. This is life or death and we want to live. And when we listen to Jesus, he will tell you the hard things you don't want to face. And he will seek justice where justice is due. And he will press on the deepest wounds we have until we are healed. And then, only then, we will act out of who God has formed our character to be through the adversity and the affliction. And it is this process that God uses to expose the depth of our idolatry the depth to which we have turned to false replacement gods that enslave us to sin. But then, but then we're released and we say, be gone to those idols. Then we'll be free to call out injustice where we see it. We'll be free to wait on God's provision in the face of uncertainty. The rest of the chapter of Isaiah 30 that we didn't have time or space to, to, to dive into It basically details how God will provide for his people when they return to him and how ultimately he will judge the oppressing Assyrians if only his people would return to him. I want to close with with one story. This passage, um, particularly Isaiah 30, 15, is one that is, is close to my heart. It's one that I've wrestled with for years. About six years ago, uh, my wife, Laura, and I, um, we were praying through Compline. And, and that is, uh, the ang- in the Anglican prayer book, there are prayers that you pray immediately before bed. It's just a short prayer service. And part of that service, um, Isaiah 30, 15, kept popping up in the reading schedule. Now, at the time, uh, I was I just finished seminary. I'd, I'd been working three jobs and studying full time. And then we'd finished and I was still working three jobs and our daughters, uh, one was a newborn, one was three years old, and we were exhausted. I didn't know at the time, but I was falling back on on my Egypt, so to speak. Um, I have this impulse to work very hard, but not very smart, hence the three jobs. Um, but, But we read this passage, we're exhausted, and we just thought, rest. That's what we need. So at the time, um, both of our parents had offered for us to stay with them for an extended visit. Um, They wanted to see the grandkids, and we were kind of like, okay, let's take some time off to rest. We'll spend time with family. We'll seek what God might have in store for us next. So we packed up, and we drove all over the place. We were in Vancouver at the time. We ended up in Calgary, where my family is. Then we went to Oklahoma, where my wife's family was. We ended up a bunch of places in between, and And while we had in our mind our idea of rest, God had in mind the entire passage in context. 
so it's always dangerous to to embrace just one verse because because it means something in the whole context god knew there was stuff inside of me that needed to be dealt with if i was to truly find rest and so uh close to the time of our end of end of our planned time off um my aunt actually gave me a book that she wrote about and it was detailing my mom's side of the family history and i made some discoveries there that completely undid me I discovered that, that my ancestors were indentured servants in Trinidad. And if you're not familiar with, uh, with what that is, indentured serv servitude, um, basically what happened when plantation owners um, were faced with the, the British Empire um, saying that slavery is not good anymore, um, outlying it, um, the plantation owners had to replace chattel slavery with something. So they replaced it with indentured workers. And that's how my family ended up from India to Trinidad. And I discovered that my grandmother actually worked on a sugarcane plantation when she was pregnant with my oldest aunt. I began to piece together the effect of generational trauma that gets play, passed on when you're a descendant of survivors of forms of slavery. And God kept taking me deeper and deeper into the depths of pain and cycles of violence and depression and disillusionment. And I'd say, you know, adversity and affliction were mild terms for it. That's what characterized my family's history. Um, but as I faced that family's history, as hard as it was, as painful as it was, God healed me in the deepest parts of my soul. And he was present with me in it. And as Laura and I wrestled through this, and we wrestled through what systemic oppression looks like and feels like and how it, how it resonates down through generations, we discovered that Jesus was walking, us through, walking with us through all of this. It sucked, and I, I couldn't have faced it on my own, but Jesus was there. James Baldwin says, Not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is faced. It's my prayer for you that in whatever you face, you would be granted the courage to face it and to return to the Lord and rest in his presence and learn how to do that and have him lead you through the adversity and affliction till you experience true rest and are made whole and equipped to face with confidence the challenges that will lay ahead. We're called to look to Jesus in the face of adversity and instability and suffering. He's faithful to lead you through it. Now in a moment, um, Amber's going to lead us uh, in a song as we respond to this passage. But if, uh, if you'll turn to, uh, to your program, uh, there is a prayer that I want to lead us through as we transition. Um, it's actually a prayer from our Kenyan brothers and sisters uh, in the Anglican Church of Kenya that's based on Isaiah 30, 15. Please pray with me. Almighty and everlasting God, Father of the Prince of Peace, in returning and rest we are saved. In quietness and trust is our strength. Grant us the blessing of making peace and the joy of seeking justice. Take away from our soul all strain and stress and let our ordered lives confess the beauty of your peace through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.
Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com slash give.